This episode of TV's Top 5 is brought to you by the Stars limited series, Mary and George. Julianne Moore and Nicholas Galitzine star in the scandalous true story of Mary Valliere, who molded her beautiful and charismatic son to seduce King James I. Quite the moment in history. See why the Hollywood Reporter calls it a delicious drama. Mary and George, for your Emmy consideration for outstanding limited series and all eligible categories. Mary and George is now streaming on the Stars app. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to episode 247 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, Chief? Well, the sun is out and it is not currently raining and hopefully nobody in our sphere experienced too much damage from our latest storm of the century or the millennium, which hit Los Angeles at the beginning of the week. And for people who who mock the idea of what however many inches of rain, and in some cases we're talking like 13 inches of rain. So that's just a lot of freaking rain. I heard there were like 10 inches here in Burbank, and I definitely have a couple of leaks here, so. Yeah, I, I, I hear. I, I trust it's at least stopped. Yes, thank God. Okay, <laughs> that's that's good. Um, yes, so anyway, Los Angeles doesn't do well with rain, but I'll add that no one and nowhere does well with 13 inches of rain dropped in a 24-hour period, so we're not saying you necessarily want to pity all of your Los Angeles friends, family, and whatever but you yeah, know just it's it's more serious than who it's a rainy day necessarily sounds but in any case we are fine and hopefully everyone we know and love is fine as well and a big and a big greetings to all of our friends that we've uh, gotten some FaceTime with this week at the Television Critics Association's Winter Press Tour. Nice to see a couple of familiar faces that I haven't seen since pre-COVID. And uh, you got a big session coming up on Friday, uh, February 9th, which we'll probably talk about on next week's podcast. But FX Day at TCA is tomorrow. So I am very pumped. We will definitely get lots of John Landgraf giving us numbers, which is what all we want in the world. Yeah. Well, before we get into, well, we're not going to get into any of that, but before we get into this week's episode, we're going to start where we usually do, with headlines. Number one. Leading off, big news on the Law & Order universe as Sam Waterston is leaving Dick Wolf's flagship drama after a remarkable 20 seasons. 20 seasons. I mean, that's that's an end of an era. We, the, to, totally fair to view that as an end of an era and a definite sea change in the industry. Yeah. Tony Goldwyn will step in as the show's new DA. And he seems to fit with the brand. So Yeah. Plus, you know, all the scandal, you know, favorites. I, I always love, so. Indeed. Continue with things on the casting front, uh, Giancarlo Esposito will step in for the late, great Andre Brower in The Residence, the White House thriller from Shonda Rhimes for Netflix. Demi Moore will star opposite Billy Bob Thornton in Taylor Sheridan's drama Landman, or Landman. I'm Land not really Man. sure whether it should be pronounced like it's somebody's Jewish relative from back in the old country, Landsman, or whether it's just Landman. Spider-Man? I don't know. Anyway, for Paramount Plus. Spider-Man? Hmm? Spider-Man? Exactly. 
Spider-Man. Land man, land man, does whatever, does whatever a land, a man, land can. man can. Yeah. Exactly. See, in, in your mind, it's Spider-Man. In my mind, it's Spider-Pig. Of course it is. Does whatever a Spider-Pig can. Yeah. yeah. Can he spring from a web? No, he no, can't. No, he can't. He is a pig. Indeed. <laughs> Continuing along, Don Cheadle has joined the cast of Peacock's Fight Night, which follows an armed robbery on the night of Muhammad Ali's 1970 comeback fight. That is the Kevin Hart series, if memory serves. And Catherine O'Hara is the latest big name to join the season two cast of HBO's The Last of Us in a role that is described in as top secret. Some good castings there. Look, if if the first season proved anything, it's that that show apparently is a great way to get Emmy nominations for one episode guest roles. So I'm glad they're getting some big names for that. Yes. In terms of the new scripted front, following a bidding war, Apple has landed Margot's Got Money Troubles, the drama from David E. Kelly that is based on the forthcoming book of the same name with Elle Fanning and Nicole Kidman attached to star. Elsewhere, after axing Harlan Coben shelter following its one season run amazon is reteaming with the author and the team behind netflix's pull me once for lazarus a limited series starring sam clayfin bill nighy and alexandra roach and in other series pickups and news out of tca here amc is bringing back anthology the terror for a third season this one's going to be based on the book the devil in silver series last ran nearly five years ago and in pilot season news, also known as not quite a series order, NBC has picked up Suits LA, a companion to the former USA Network drama from creator Aaron Korsh. Built around a character who has nothing to do with the television series Suits. Yeah, well, it's, uh, hey, look, this show really works on Netflix and everyone watched it, so why not go back to the well while it's hot? Or by the point the pilot's made and the decisions are ready to be made in May, who the hell knows? Exactly. Exactly. FX has provided a status update on one of my favorite shows, Dave. Uh, apparently, Dave Bird, Lil Dicky to his fans, uh, will be taking a break from the comedy series after three seasons to pursue other opportunities. It is not being called a cancellation, as FX is keeping the door open for more Dave episodes someday, a little bit like the way HBO used to do with Larry David and Curb Your Enthusiasm, except that this season of Curb Your Enthusiasm is the last season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, but season three of Dave, eh, who knows? Yeah, but as you'll recall, Curb did have a long period in between there where it was off the air as Larry David pursued other interests, so very similar situation here. Indeed, that they had a six-season hiatus at some point, and uh, one that was, I think, three years, six-year hiatus, rather, six years that they were off at one stretch three at another so yeah people are accustomed to that but i'm still disappointed so oh well because i love dave and would love to have it back but i guess everyone's got to do what they got to do that's right in renewals disney plus has picked up percy jackson and the olympians for a second season fox has renewed animal control for a third season ahead of the joel McHale comedy's second season return and on the unscripted front the traders has been renewed for a third season at peacock and Jason Momoa's travelogue on the Rome has been renewed for its second season at Max. Disney Plus will be the streaming home for Taylor Swift's Eras tour documentary with four additional songs uh, that will hit Disney Plus starting on March 15th. That is a fairly big coup for the streaming platform. And Winona Earp will live again in some form at least, uh, this time on Tubi with a 90-minute special airing later this year. Yeah, as you'll recall, uh, when Emily Andress, the creator and showrunner of Winona Earp, was on TV's Top 5, they had planned to do a fifth season that was included in Sci-Fi's deal for a fourth season, but then 
IDW basically went belly up and ran out of money and season five went kaput and the show ended with season four. So unclear if uh, this special, which is uh, has the subtitle of Vengeance, is anything similar to what uh, she planned for season five. And wrapping up headlines and it with news that is of direct interest to both Dan and I, but more so for Dan, Netflix is getting into business with Major League Baseball and has teamed with the Boston Red Sox for a Drive to Survive-esque docuseries following the team's 2024 season, as well as a two-part documentary about the team's 2004 championship. It's first since trading Babe Ruth to the Yankees and also known as the reverse the curse buster. So pretty cool, Dan, if you're a Red Sox fan like you are. It's interesting. The 30 for 30 documentary about the 2004 Red Sox specifically focuses only or mostly on the ALCS comeback against the Yankees. And it's truly one of the worst of the uh, of the 30 for 30 docs. It's you know, it's crazy it's, because that game was incredible and that rivalry is everything in sports. I can watch the documentary and I can get emotional in the same way that I did 20 years ago, but it's still a badly made documentary and it's basically a promotional film. I, I don't necessarily know how this is going to be different. It's being made by longtime columnist Mike Barnacle's son, so that's at least interesting. I'm curious about the documentary following the 2024 Red Sox. I'm... <laughs> From the outside, I don't fully understand how the 2024 Red Sox are a particularly interesting team. They, it seems to me like it's going to be a documentary following a team as it tries to avoid finishing in last. I, I don't yeah, know if it's that's... <laughs> clearly a season that of, for rebuilding if, if you follow baseball, which obviously we do. But yeah, and it's like they're, you know, they haven't really signed any big free agents. They, they've made some weird trades, including a trade with the Yankees, which I was surprised to see. And now they're still talking about trading Kenley Jansen, so... You know, it feels like it, maybe it's a rebuilding year for the franchise. Which makes it not, not necessarily interesting television, unless it turns out that they're much better or much worse than expected. The reason I'm interested in it, though, is that it's going to be directed by uh, Greg Whiteley from Last Chance You and from Wrestlers, who is truly one of my favorites in, in the space. So, I mean, honestly, truly, you could tell me that he was doing a documentary following any Major League Baseball team including teams that I don't care about or root for. And I would be like, okay, yes, I will be willing to watch that. So that to me, much more than the Red Sox of it is, is why I am curious, but you know, we'll see. That's, that's I mean, 162 games is a very long season to follow a team. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that, that gets all whittled down. So, and again, especially if they're not interesting, if they are interesting, then you know, then, then it's just a good documentary and it'll be up to someone to edit smartly. And I have faith in Greg Whiteley. If, however, they have another season where they win, I don't know, between 75 and 85 games, which seems pretty much reasonable, but also completely mediocre, I don't necessarily know. Could how be that worse, be Dan. It could be the Oakland A's. It's true. And, but, or the Las well, Vegas honestly, A's or the homeless A's. Exactly. Which is, which is why to me, if that I had... interesting. Exactly. If I had a, if I had a camera... And I had the opportunity to follow a team. I think following an A's team, following up on one of the worst baseball seasons in, in history last season, and as a team with basically no stable home in the middle of two markets, neither one of which wants to commit to giving them a place to actually play baseball, that to me sounds like a fantastic series, but... You know, we'll yeah. see. Or, I mean, following the Dodgers with the best player <laughs> on the planet with Shohei Otani, and then you've got, what, I've lost track of how many former MVPs. you got Otani, Betts, Freeman, Kirsch. I mean, come on. But 
again, I, I would imagine that uh, the media world is trying everything in their power to do anything with Shohei Otani, and I'm guessing he's saying no to all of it. Yeah, I, I definitely think that would be <laughs> that would be one of the issues there. Anyway, we'd like to emphasize that we have actually been talking about this completely in terms of uh, television. This has not been a baseball conversation at all, even if there's been some baseball related to it. This is totally TV related and on brand for TV's top five. Thanks, Netflix, and thanks, MLB. Up second this week. Maybe consider this Hulu for sports? I don't know. We'll find out. Number two. Disney, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery this week announced plans for an as-yet-unnamed super sports streaming service that will see assets from all three media companies on one platform, bringing together the NFL, the NBA, WNBA, MLB, NHL, NASCAR, the PGA Golf, Grand Slam Tennis, and FIFA World Cup, and so much more. The joint venture also looks to bundle linear networks and certain direct-to-consumer sports content. Following this week's surprise announcement, though, there are far more questions than answers. And joining us all to break it down is Alex Weprin, The Hollywood Reporter's media and business writer. Thanks again for joining us, Alex. Leslie, Dan, thanks for having me. So what do we know about how much this service is going to cost, when it'll launch, and honestly, why they're doing this? So the launch date, they're saying fall of this year. And I'd heard they want to get it out the door before the NFL season starts, which makes sense. So it's going to be sooner than some people think. We don't know a cost yet. Uh, you know, I've been talking to people in the industry. Most people think, you know, around $40 a month. Some people think a little higher. Some people think they might launch it a little lower because it's new. But, you know, in that ballpark, it's not going to be cheap, but it'll be significantly less expensive than like a cable package or a streaming cable package like YouTube TV or Hulu with live TV, which is really what it's competing against. So as we record this, The Athletic just broke that Major League Baseball is targeting a 2025 launch for its own direct-to-consumer streaming package that would include possibly half of the 30 teams in in baseball. Then you've got ESPN Plus, which Disney announced is going to be launching this year. What does that this this super team up mean for these other standalone services? You know, I, I actually don't think um, they're in competition necessarily. I think the Major League Baseball offering, they don't really have any details yet, but really that's meant to be a replacement for the regional sports networks. You know, these these local sports channels that are kind of disappearing that would carry baseball, NBA, hockey games in local markets. So really, I think the goal there is to kind of try and find a way forward in the RSN business. And frankly, I think this new bundle could actually end up being a partner for Major League Baseball or others. Um, you know, a place where you subscribe to this core bundle that has all these channels, then for an extra five bucks a month or whatever, you can get you know a small sliver of lo- your local channels too. So th- I can kind of see them working together on this. The interesting thing for me is that this is going to include all of ESPN's linear channels, but ESPN is still going to launch their own direct-to-consumer service next year. And that's like, I'm not entirely sure why. they have ESPN hasn't really made the case for what this new uh, direct-to-consumer platform that they're going to launch next year, the flagship, what that's going to look like, what features it's going to have that's going to make people want to subscribe to it instead of this bundle. So, you know, that's the big question mark for me. You know, why is ESPN moving forward on their own direct-to-consumer offering and also trying to launch this direct-to-consumer offering? It feels like there aren't some competition. Well, one of the things that was in the release that struck me is 
the phrase, the formation of the pay service is subject to the negotiation of definitive agreements amongst the parties, which isn't usually the kind of phrasing that you mm-hmm. get in an announcement that's supposed to be a definitive announcement. So yeah. like, is this actually as much of a sure thing as everyone's treating it? Or is it really actually still in flux because there are all of these definitive agreements that still have to be reached? If I was going to bet, if I was going to be a betting man and sports is, you know, loans itself well to betting, I'd put odds at around 80 to 90 percent that this launches, which is pretty good. I think it's most likely going to launch. Now, I think the reason that's there is because they wanted to rush this out. They wanted to rush this service. And I think they wanted to announce it before they reported earnings this quarter, both Fox and Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery. And so I think what happened was they probably had an agreement in principle where they said, "Okay, let's do this. We're going to you know, we've got a rough idea of what we're going to do. Let's announce it and we'll, you know, haggle on the details after, you know, until we can finalize it. So I I think that they probably got to that point where they're like, we're 90 percent there, but let's uh, you know, we can't say for sure that we've locked it. So I think it's going to happen. You know, there's still a chance that there is a regulatory issue um, because, you know, after all, these companies are competitors. They compete for each other on sports rights. Uh, I had heard that the sports partners, the NBA, the NFL, others were not clued in that this was happening. And so they were caught off guard. And I think you could see that if you're the NBA and you're about to enter rights negotiations, which they are, you know, how does it feel to have your two big TV partners collaborating on a streaming service? Like if one of them loses the the NBA, this service is still going to have the NBA. Like, so that, you know, it raises interesting questions. Fubo, which is kind of a small virtual cable streaming cable provider that, that kind of wants to be the sports uh, streaming provider, they put out a statement that was very terse and like kind of raised antitrust concerns. So if it does collapse, I think it's most likely going to be due to regulatory concerns rather than um, an you know, inability to kind of you know, haggle out the details. Yeah, because if you're like Warner Brothers Discovery and you're going in to negotiate for rights for the NBA, but your competitor is like, you know what, I don't need to to, to deal with, you know, to, to put in a bid myself because we're going to still get it as part of this joint venture. That means they're going to, they're not going to have a bidding war, which means you're going to get less money in these rights for basketball, right? That's, uh, theoretically, that's the concern. You know, the, the question is, will they still both continue to bid eagerly for, you know, rights? They're saying yes, you know, they're still competitors, they're still linear cable channels, they're still, um, you know, they've got their own direct-to-consumer offering. So, like, in theory, they're still competing. But this team-up does kind of raise some issues that I think the leagues are going to want to know more about. Yeah, like, I don't want to say it's it's collusion, but it definitely sounds like it has the potential to be collusive if that's if that's a thing. Like, like I don't know how you negotiate under those circumstances, and it has me shaking my head. So I assume it has to have someone with uh, a higher pay grade shaking their head. <laughs> yeah, you know, look, and obviously – you know, no comp- no one company is going to have a majority stake here. They're each going to own a third. Um, and it's going to have its own operating team, um, its own brand. It's going to be an independent company. So, you know, it, uh, you know, I guess that they think that that'll kind of help alleviate those concerns because no one company will be able to really influence anything more than the others. But, um, you know, I think it, it, this definitely raised some eyebrows in the leagues because the leagues want to have as many bidders as possible. And they want those bidders to be actively bidding against each other. They don't want them to be working together to drive down the price. 
So, you know, I think that's that's something we're going to have to see. Right, because the price for these athletes yeah. continues to soar. And you got to find a way to recoup all, you know, the $700 million you're going to pay Shohei Otani over the next, you know, lifetime. But like speaking yeah. of Otani and the Dodgers, you know, for someone like me, look, Sportsnet LA, it used to be exclusive to Spectrum. Then they opened it up to DirecTV. But like for someone like me, who's I, I am dying to cut the cord. The only reason that I have cable is to watch the Dodgers. And it's a pain in the butt to try and cancel it, get them and, and have them reinstall it. So there's no churn in this household anyway. But what does it mean for some of these te- these, these local regional sports networks like, like Sportsnet LA when they have a long-term deal with the Dodgers and Spectrum? Like that, like who's going to, you know, if you're a Dodger fan, are you going to pay $40 a month for the service to not get the Dodgers? Well, I've got great news, Leslie, because Charter has said they intend to take Sportsnet LA direct to consumer at some point in the future, possibly this year, maybe next year. Um, but no, but it raises real questions about regional sports networks, right? Uh, you know, I think in big markets like Los Angeles or New York, there might be enough people to justify, a, you know, a direct to consumer offering. I don't think you can in Milwaukee or you know, or, you know, Atlanta, like all these you know kind of mid-sized cities that maybe. You know, they, they just don't have the scale that like the, the really giant cities like Chicago, New York, Los Angeles have. And so I think regional sports networks and, and the future there is really in question. And that's why you're seeing this Major League Baseball kind of effort to try and take some of their smaller market teams and, and kind of create this new bundle. I could see them partnering with an ESPN or this new company or an Amazon, someone else to kind of help sell it. Because Major League Baseball is not really in a position to sell, you know, a, a regional sports thing. Like they've had MLB.TV, their national out-of-market service, but regional sports are for local fans. It's a very different type of thing. And so I think it makes sense to have it as part of a bundle. But really, you know, the regional sports network business is in real disarray. And I think everyone's trying to figure out, you know, someone that could come in and help them kind of salvage this business. Yeah, because even as a baseball fan, you know, and I'm, and I'm sure it's like this with other sports, you know, that I beyond what I my specific interest is. But it's it's incredibly it's it's impossible to figure to, you know, to find some of these games because it's like I go to Spectrum Sportsnet for everything. But then here's a game on Apple. Here's a game on Peacock. And it's like. You know, and you're throwing your arms up and then you get to the playoffs and it's another thing. Okay, well, this is on Fox. This is on TBS. This is on ESPN. And it's 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 a mess. So how is this going to come? You know, would this joint venture combat that when you've got NFL games that are exclusive to Amazon, exclusive to Peacock with neither one of those two companies part of this joint venture? It kind of would in some ways. And as you know, it would also kind of cause new problems in other ways. You know, ESPN is still the 800-pound gorilla in, in sports. And so to have all the ESPN content is huge. Fox has not licensed any of their sports to streaming before. Uh, so this is the first time that Fox sports NFL games and college football and baseball are going to be available to stream in kind of something that's relatively affordable. Uh, and Warner Brothers Discovery has only just started to do some streaming experimentation with sports. So in some ways, this is kind of a one-stop shop. It'll cover... I think they estimate about 85% of live sports viewing will be available through this bundle. And the remaining 15%, you know, you know, would be local, regional sports networks and NBC and CBS, uh, who also, I heard, were not in the loop on this. <laughs> so, um, but it's also worth noting, by the way, that NBC, Peacock, and, and CBS, Paramount+, Plus, uh, their sports are available in streaming for five bucks a month. So, like, if you want, you know, NBC, Sunday Night Football, and the Olympics... Peacock's right there. It's easy. 
if you want CBS Sunday football, if you want, you know, um, the, some of their, uh, their European soccer, Paramount Plus is right there. And so I think that might be one of the reasons that these three companies teamed up because ESPN and Fox have not made their core sports available in streaming before. And Warner Brothers Discovery just started experimenting. So in some ways, this is stuff that just really wasn't easily accessible unless you're going to pay 80 bucks a month for YouTube TV or, you know, however much you pay your cable provider. I just yeah, don't yeah. get how the cable providers, though, are are going to sit back and, and take this because like every response that I saw on social media was basically the reason I'm holding on to cable is because of all this sports stuff. Now maybe I can cut the cord and I have to assume that somebody at, at Spectrum and all these other places are saying the same thing. What do they have by way of pushback available to them? So the ramifications of this are pretty serious uh, across a wide, you know, a wide sort of area. Like, so I had also heard well, the leagues didn't know about it. The, um, uh, NBC and CBS didn't know about it. I heard the cable providers did not know about this. This was a real surprise to most people in the industry. Um, I think they are in a position to demand concessions next time, you know, um, carriage agreements come up. There, it, It's going to depend on the structure. Like, is this new venture going to be paying market rate for these channels? If so, then like there's not, maybe there isn't a ton that a cable provider can do. Um, if this venture is paying below market rate, then they can try and force the prices down. You know, they can try to you know carve out sports as a separate package, which I think is something that Charter is trying to do at Spectrum. So I think there's there's different ways to combat it. They're not going to take the sitting down. They're going to take action. But I will note that the repercussions of this are not just going to be felt in cable packages. It's going to impact other television channels, other linear television channels, and specifically entertainment channels and news channels. Because sports, as you said, really have been the one thing that is keeping people to cable TV. And so if this does attract people to drop their cable package in favor of this slimmer package, the sports package, then it's going to impact a lot of entertainment channels that don't, that just aren't available on streaming and the news channels which aren't available on streaming. So what does this mean for like the league channels like MLB Network, the NFL Network, et cetera? The league channels, you know, I, I could certainly see, you know, the leagues, if they sign new rights deals, you know, trying to force their channels onto this package. You know, I'm not the, the league. And uh, there have been reports that the NFL is looking to kind of perhaps um, have Disney take over NFL Network. Um, so, like, you know, so, you know, the league channels are kind of small in the grand scheme of things. I wouldn't be that concerned about it. They'll find their way somewhere, you know, maybe in a rights negotiation, maybe they just shut down. Uh, they're not that important to the leagues anyway. Which is crazy, you know, as someone who watches a lot of MLB Network. <laughs> it's like, you know, they don't, they, I mean, they don't cover the scandal and a, a lot of that, you know, but it's still, you know, the nightly highlights and everything else is, and the analysis, all that stuff. I don't know. I'm yeah, I mean, but you can recreate that. You can recreate that in a streaming environment, you know, if you really wanted to. Yeah. Well, this this is a the ripples of this feel like they could be cataclysmic, and I'm going to be curious. <laughs> well, you, you know, like if I was a company like AMC Networks or A and E Networks, that you know is cable only, entertainment, no sports, no streamer. I well, AMC I'd be a little worried. Yeah. Like this is not good for you. <laughs> yeah. And likewise, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. You know, it used to be people used to say, "Oh, news and sports are the only things people." pay for cable for it's it's it was always sports it wasn't news like people 
I kind of maybe appreciated having them around, but no one was paying for them. So, uh, you know, I don't know what, what's going to happen there. And all of the little cable networks where the whole deal with the resistance against a la carte cable for all of those years was this is a way of helping support networks that might not be able to stay in business under other circumstances. Well, if suddenly cable gets seriously hindered by this, I feel like there's a lot of middle tier cable networks that really could just get decimated. And I don't I, I don't know if yeah. that's good. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, putting aside the AMCs and the A&Es, like, you know, independents like Hallmark Channel, um, you know, there are uh, a number of cable channels that, you know, have existed, you know, launched over the years and are not associated with a huge company that, you know, are already kind of feeling the pain and they'd only feel it further if really, if this stole customers away from cable or from the larger streaming bundles like YouTube TV, then it, it becomes a serious problem. M much more to come on on this story. Alex, thank you, as always, for providing your insight. Thank you. Number three. Up third, live from New York, it's Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley crashing the cold open on the February 3rd installment of NBC's Saturday Night Live, which, of course, was instantly met with backlash online. NBC declined comment on Haley's SNL appearance and but sources say the network will comply with any equal time obligations for other presidential candidates across both parties. But still, Dan, this was, I mean, if I'm Io Debri, who hosted this episode, I would have been like, I would have been pissed. Like, just won the Emmy, a breakout star, finally getting her moment in, in the spotlight after Bottoms and everything else that she's done. Like, you know, obviously a lot of that stuff was was during the strike, so she couldn't really promote a ton of it. But this is this is her moment, and this is how it started. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of curious about the Io Debery part of it because she got to be in the cold open which is not usually the case for hosts and that gives the impression that either there was a specific asked to her to do it or that she requested to do it neither one of which makes clear sense because she got to be the one who queued up Nikki Haley to make her extremely stupid conversation about the Civil War and the causes of the Civil War into an entirely substance-free punchline, which I don't really think she's entitled to do. If she were just a casual civilian and she said something dumb about the causes of the Civil War and left out slavery as a cause of the Civil War, then you go, ha ha ha, you're funny and stupid. But instead, she's running for president of the United States, kind of. And to me, it is not really something that can be passed off as as being a, a cheap joke. I mean, <laughs> anyone anyone whose instinctive no thought reaction to what the causes for the Civil War are isn't slavery and then some other stuff or slavery, but it's more complicated than that or whatever. If you leave out slavery, yeah, anyway, it's it's not something that to me can be passed off as a joke. But the whole thing is is just stupid. I mean, however many days later, Nikki Haley lost uh, the Nevada primary to none of these candidates on the ballot. So she's not really a candidate for president. Her only chance of becoming a candidate for president is if the guy who controls the Republican Party is somehow in jail in, you know, in time for them to make someone else the Republican nominee. If the process goes along in a normal way, not that anything is normal these days when Donald Trump is the head of your party, she's not really a candidate for president. She's no more or less a candidate for president than the, the guy from Minnesota who used to run the gelato company and who's technically kind of 
running for president against Joe Biden. They're not real candidates and you don't need to give them oxygen, except that is who Lorne Michaels is and it is what Saturday Night Live is. And I don't know why Iowa Debery wanted or accepted being involved in that horribly written little piece of comedy. Again, it wasn't funny because Nikki Haley isn't funny. She's not really a human being with a personality. So uh, yeah, that baffling to me. And it's and it's the kind of thing that Lauren Michaels did and does. And it wasn't even the thing that got the most people annoyed, actually, when all is said and done within the context of the first 30 minutes of this yeah. week's SNL. Yeah, it, that's right. Heading into commercial break, SNL announced that comedian Shane Gillis will host later this month. With that news coming after he was fired for using racial and homophobic slurs during a podcast some four days after he was announced as a new cast member for the Variety Sketch Show back in 2019. Now, to clarify... He was fired within four days. The yeah. podcast uh, episodes where he said the... Right, yeah. So basically, yeah. you know, NBC and Lauren announced a new batch of, of cast members back in 2019. Shane Gillis was one of them. For Like almost instantly, his comments on this this podcast resurfaced. The internet does what it, what it always does. And he was fired four days later. And now he's coming in to host this month. Which I just, I don't don't know what to say about it because it's completely unnecessary. That's the thing. It's not as if he has the biggest movie in the country coming out and whatever. And it's also not as if he's expressed real regrets about any of the things that he said. I mean, basically, he couched all of his comments from those podcast episodes. And if you go back, they've all been deleted because, frankly kind of cowardly, but whatever. That's what people do. It's what people do. But anyway, if you if you go and you read the transcripts of the comments, it it's unambiguous racism. It's it's utter bullshit. And it's utter bullshit that he attempted to hide behind the I'm an edgy comedian. And sometimes when you're an edgy comedian, you're gonna say things that some people find offensive. No, he uh, he it's just racist shit that he was saying, trying and to get a laugh out of it. Yeah. And I I just I so whatever it's gross. And to have him come back or not really come back, it's have him appear in a circumstance in which in most seasons, the show wouldn't have a random stand-up comedian slash podcaster hosting episodes of SNL. Now, obviously the show did have a reasonable amount of success with Nate Bergazzi earlier this year. And and he was sort of the, per- the kind of star that the show doesn't always make a platform for and it was entirely successful so you can kind of be like if you're if you're Lorne Michaels you can be like okay this proves that the podcast slash stand up to SNL hosting pipeline is is one that we ought to use more often the question of whether it should be used more often to enhance the profile of somebody who you fired for an entirely legitimate reason that's something i just i don't know what they're doing at snl and i don't know why lauren michaels is doing stuff like this so frequently and and like you i feel bad for iowa debris because the episode was kind of a mixed bag to begin with but a lot of the stuff she did especially in the second half of the show was fantastic like like there were sketches where she was going wonderfully off into left field and it was a reminder that her background is exactly the kind of background for somebody who 
would be a part of the SNL cast, and she just went a different direction and found success through other avenues. But she could absolutely be a part of this show's cast and would be exactly the kind of person who would enhance a show like Saturday Night Live. And yet I spent the entire episode with this bad, with this doubly bad taste in my mouth because of the pointless and unnecessary Nikki Haley appearance and then the the pointless and entirely preventable, you know, bygones to to Shane Gillis. Like doing it like this, it makes it seem as if SNL did something wrong. Or alternatively, it makes it seem as if he did something redemptive. And neither one of those two things is actually true, I don't think. So it's just saying we didn't think this guy was kosher to have in our cast because he said a lot of dumb shit. But now we're fine with it because it's five years later and we just don't think anyone cares. And I, that, that's just too cynical for words. I got nothing to add to that, Dan. You said it very well. So up next. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number four. We put out a call for questions a bunch of times, and y'all responded with some real good ones. So it's time for our mailbag segment. And a reminder, if you have questions that you would like to hear Dan and I discuss on the show, drop us an email. That's TV's Top 5. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Up first, Abdullah emails. Is the Ally McBeal reboot with Renee's daughter still happening at ABC? I assumed the Emmys reunion would shine a light on this, but it's been crickets since the initial announcement. Leslie? No. Okay, good answer. <laughs> I mean, that's how development goes. A lot of times you put things in development, you see what happens, you know, you get a bunch of, you pay for scripts, you get scripts, you get them back, you give notes, you do this a, a few times, you, you you know, you do the dance, and that you then you get a yes or a no. And in this case, it's, it appears the answer is no, per sources. I wonder if though, if there's any rumbling in, in the halls of power about some sort of different Ally McBeal reboot, revival, whatever, because really people were talking about Ally McBeal after that Emmy's cameo, guest appearance, nostalgia trip, however you want to put it. I, I feel like it would be a mistake not to try to explore something, but I agree. who knows? I mean, but also just do it with the original cast or as much as the original cast is, as is willing. So who knows if you get Lucy Liu back to that. But Reader Allen writes that he's noticed a rise in male nudity. I see what you did there, Dan, in that question. Uh, on TV, saying that while initially it might have aimed for parody with female nudity, the correction might have gone too far in the other direction. He asks, Dan, you watch a lot more TV than I or almost any civilian does. That, that's true. Do you agree that this has been a trend? Or has Alan just missed all of these shows that are still featuring plenty of female nudity 
Or if you agree that this has happened, do you feel it's actually a good thing to eliminate the quote unquote male gaze from premium TV? I, th- I think it's a complicated question that I could just dismiss with a with a no. Like I, I do not think that we have reached the point at which we went past nudity parody into an overcompensation wherein there's more male nudity on TV than female nudity and that this is a problem, even if it were true. So so that would be that would be the basic answer, which is I do not think we have reached the point at which there are more dicks on TV than boobs. And also, I mean, especially, even if we somehow, especially if Minx is not coming back, even if we had, though, I don't think it's a bad thing, because if there were a brief period of overcorrection, wherein the nudity reflecting half of the population of the world slightly less than half, but whatever, uh, had somehow for two or three years or one or two years or a month usurped female nudity, which had been kind of the coin of the realm on television, especially, well, television movies, especially prestige cable, et cetera, for for decades. So it would not be a bad thing if that had occurred. It would simply be a, uh, you know, a correction in the marketplace. I don't think it's true. I think it I think male nudity stands out because it is still more frequently used for shock value than organic injection, so to speak, into scenes of passion or general emotional and physical nakedness. Like it's used for the purpose of making people go, whoa, dicks, as opposed to the fact that you can very casually have female nudity in things because of how prevalent it's been. And so when a show like Minx, as Leslie just mentioned, makes an active point of saying we're going to have all of these dicks, what they're trying to do is they're supposed to, they're trying to jar you, whether they're trying to distract you or whether they're just trying to draw attention to what they're doing. The purpose is to make you say, oh my goodness, that's a lot of dicks. This is similarly- Or or as Ellen said during our podcast, dick, 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 dick. And that's what it is. And similarly, when Euphoria did it, it was it was roughly the same principle. Euphoria said, we're going to have a locker room scene with 50 dicks in it, and that's how we're going to show you that we're doing whatever we're doing. Now, of course, neither Minx nor Euphoria were exclusively male nudity. They both offer ample female nudity, if that's more your bag. So I would say those are a couple of shows that have been more in the realm of parody. I would say that, yes, there are some shows, let's say like Fellow Travelers, in which there's distinctly more male nudity than female nudity. This is reflective of the fact that it is telling a story that's a a gay love story between two men, and that's how it's doing it, there have been ever so many shows (laughs) that have done similar things with straight love stories in which the nudity has been almost exclusively female over the years. So like the answer to the question is, I don't think that there's more male nudity. Well, there's definitely more male nudity than there was 10 years ago. There's no question about that. There's definitely not more male nudity than there is female nudity. And what male nudity there is, it jumps out in your mind because mostly it's not being used in a matter-of-fact way. This, of course, though, opens a whole big can of penises regarding just sort of what draws our attention to nudity of any kind. So, like, if an actress takes off her top, it's instantly R-rated. If Justin Hartley does a CBS show, he's taking off his shirt in every other scene. 
and that's on CBS. So is the only way to achieve parity, you know, do you have to go full frontal? And if so, what does that mean? So there's there's a lot of question about what objectification means and how nudity is represented and, and our various different levels of puritanism, puritanicalism how we are puritanical as a society, however you want to put it, in which some things we respond to more dramatically than others. So, like, it would not bother me if there were a slight overcompensation for a number of years because the overcompensation in the other direction was so long, so vast, and so great. So, yes, more male nudity than there was five or ten years ago. No, not overcompensating, at least not in my mind. And even if it were, it would not be a bad thing. And even if it were, it would still be like a 55% dick to boob ratio or something. We're, we're not talking about an avalanche of dicks here. And yeah, uh, I'm just either going to sit here and keep saying dick over and over again, or we can move to the next question. Uh, <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> which, which comes from, okay, I, I, I think it really is probably for the best. Um <laughs> No, there, there are plenty of boobs on television. There are some dicks on television. I mean, there's a new season of Spartacus coming. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, and, and this is what I thought. This, And that is something I thought. Like, a lot of the shows and, like, I can't tell you what is actually happening regarding nudity on the various different power spinoffs on, on Stars, for example. I can't tell you what's been happening in terms of nudity on Outlander on Stars. So like Stars have They have their know, own have, lane. They do. And and that and and it's a lane which has over the years featured a fair amount of both male and female nudity. I just couldn't tell I mean, you Pea right Valley, now. Right? Pea Valley absolutely is a show that has had bodies of both kinds and that has been bodies of both kinds with a very conscious female gaze. So I, I think that probably the fact that there are more women behind the camera um, and that that is subverting a traditionally male gaze, male perspective, whatever, which is a good thing, will lead to different versions of what people are ogling. And I, I think that, which is also not to say very clearly that a female director cannot ogle over a female body any more or less than a male director can't or can ogle over a male body. Anyone can ogle over anything. And again, let's move on to the next question, which comes from writing duo Heather and Danielle. It's a two-parter. First, how is the potential upcoming uh, Teamster strike affecting script sales? It seems like no one is buying anything, even though we're just back from the writer's strike. And number two, what is going on with the traditional networks uh, not doing pilots this pilot season? Is that the way that things are going for good? Is it just because they have so much stockpiled due to the pandemic and then the strike? So these are great questions, and I'm going to combine them in one answer because they're directly related. So we know that the peak TV bubble has burst. FX CEO John Landgraf is going to officially announce as much probably uh, on Friday at TCA with the new peak TV numbers. We know that the overall volume is going to plummet. I have an educated guess that it's going to be at, at least a double digit percentage decline, especially after feeling like the grim reaper of television the last couple of months with all these cancellations. But, you know, we've reported out a couple of different stories since the strike ended. And it's really, you know, everyone was, you know, a lot of executives, including people at FX and HBO, Netflix, etc. Everyone was ready for this deluge of new material to come in as soon as the strikes ended. That never happened. 
writers really stuck, took it seriously and stuck to the don't write during the strike. So there's not a lot coming in. And, and of the stuff that is coming in the door, all of these platforms, whether you're a broadcast network or a streamer with, with an unlimited war chest, everyone is doing it. it it's a content contraction. So I guess that's the non-quippy term op for the opposite of peak TV. So if I sound like a broken record, it's because this is what's happening in the industry right now. People are right-sizing their spending. They're looking at their lineups and saying, who are we? How do these shows make sense for what we do? Is the spend worth it? You're seeing a lot more shows canceled after one or two seasons. That's obviously not new, but to see it happen at other streamers outside of Netflix is interesting. So when you look at like HBO Max, a lot of their recent cancellations were shows that were greenlit, as uh, our colleague in front of the five, Joe Dalian, recently pointed out in, in his excellent newsletter, Buffering. A lot of those shows that were canceled were picked up by Bob Greenblatt and Kevin Riley execs who have not been at max since 2020. So yeah, it makes sense that you're seeing a little bit of a shift going on at max because they're sitting here and saying the original mandate was let's green light shows that go with things that we don't have, right? HBO, we're going to get all their original content. We know that they have that checks a lot of premium boxes. So we need to target the in-between avenues. And now they're sitting here and saying, okay, well, HBO is the, is, going to do what HBO continues to do, which is premium television. Max now is going to lean harder into the Warner Brothers IP, right? Which is why you see shows like And Just Like That or Peacemaker, which is a DC show. So, and the same thing is happening at all these other streamers, right? It's all about controlling your spending and making sure that you have, yes, you know, if you're Netflix, you want something for everyone, but does that mean that you're going to go out and pursue a $200 million movie, let alone five or 10 or 12 of them? Will HBO continue to make these these big high profile shows? Right, we saw you know a few years ago when they dropped Demimond, which was based on an original idea by J.J. Abrams, who was going to write and showrun it, and then he he wanted two hundred million dollars to do it, and HBO was like, "Are you crazy? We can make House of the Dragon for one hundred and twenty five million. That money matters in this climate, in this economic climate, in this place where the TV industry currently is. And as for pilots, broadcast networks are facing a lot of those same discussions, right? Their purse strings are a little bit more limited because they are part of a big media ecosystem where their parent companies need to feed their streamers. So you're going to see money coming out of a broadcast budget and being shifted to streaming. But at the same time, like you're right, a lot of these networks picked up a lot of shows for for the 23-24 broadcast season and because of the the delays in production that are at the result of the of the dual strikes last year you're not going to get those episodes until most of those shows got got pushed till next season so if you've got limited shelf space do you need to spend 3 or 4 million dollars to make 10 or 12 pilots that you know you're not going to going to air if you've got room for maybe one or two shows so first, we know that Fox has not been in the, in the pilot game for the, for some time, right? They're an independent broadcast network. Yes, they have a, a recently launched studio, Animal Control, for example, is their first fully owned show that they produced in-house after selling their studio 20th as part of the Disney deal a few years ago. But they're on a, they do kind of follow the streaming model where they do kind of script to series, right? Where they take their time to develop the stuff, get the scripts right, maybe order five or six of them, and then they'll go to series. But for new shows, they take time to find their legs. So that's why you're starting to see a lot of these, these new shows pushed to the 24-25 broadcast cycle. And when you have those shows ready to go, you're going to spend money on marketing, et cetera, to get people to tune in and to have some sort of awareness of what this, these titles are. But 
you don't need to do that with pilots. And CW, of course, we know what's going on. The next starization of that network, they're not making pilots. CW used to pick up five or eight every year. The big news this year is CBS sitting out of the pilot game this season because, well, they have a huge inventory. They've picked up a couple of things straight to series. They don't have a lot of needs. Even with some shows ending, they have a pipeline of stuff already on deck and some of them in production already to replace them. And, you know, we've been talking since COVID about the broadcast network's attempt to go to year-round development. And what you're seeing now is a direct result of not only things that were caused by the pandemic, but also it's a ripple effect of things that are also caused by the strike that is playing more into their the network's desire to go to, to year-round development. Because look, if you take your time with a show and you get it right, chances are you're not going to need to order three or four more pilots the next year because you're constantly turning over and you're doing a lot of one and dones, right? Like look, Night Court, I, I single, as, single out as a good example of this all the time because that show was developed more than a year before it even premiered rather than a script being sold in uh, a, you know in the latter half of the year or the last quarter of the year, then maybe in January it gets a pilot order. Then you rush, rush, rush and compete with everyone, including streamers and cable networks, to, for casting and directors and sound stages and everything else and locations. And then you make the pilot in a rush, and it's a mad dash to get it edited and into post and into executives' hands in May, so that they can audience test it and screen it internally and make a decision if it's going to get picked up to series. And then it's a dash to add a writer's room and get the thing on the air in September. Like that's an insane thing to do in a, such an abbreviated point of time, especially amid steep competition, even if the the amount of shows being made is is drastically lower than it has been in the last few years. So my point is, is that this is the current state of the industry. How long it lasts is a great question because there's a lot of outside factors that at play here too. So lots to, to see about the state of the industry, but we do know that these things tend to be cyclical. Making pilots, it, it is beneficial to test things. Sometimes you look at a show that gets picked up straight to series and they make the pilot and then they say, and they look at it and they're like, yeah, no, this was a bad idea. And then they pull the plug on the whole thing. And it's an expensive thing because you have to pay a series order penalty to everyone involved, or at least the people who contractually are involved with, you know, with whatever deals and back end points and all that other stuff. So yeah, this is a long winded answer of saying there are a lot of economic headwinds at play in the industry and the shift that happened right around the time uh, that before, leading up to the strikes where streamers are focused on profitability and not subscriber numbers. That's a major shift, and that's a lot of a big reason why we're in the situation that we're here now. Our next question comes from Jim, who asks, due to shows ending and long layoffs of shows airing from long production schedules and the strikes, there will be seven openings in the best drama category this year with only The Crown being the only returning nominee eligible. Is it possible that some shows that previously competed in the limited series category, like Fargo and True Detective, will move into the drama category this year since the field is wide open? Dan? It's an interesting question, and you know, I, I am much more intrigued by this year's Emmy races than I think I have been at any point in any recent years. Because as Jim says, seven of eight nominees in the uh, in the drama series category are are no longer applicable. And it's nearly as much in the in the comedy category. So the comedy category, you have the Bear, Abbott Elementary, Only Murders. I think that might be it coming back because the other comedy 
nominees are Barry, Jury Duty, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Ted Lasso, and Wednesday. So those are all shows that we know are not going to be in the field this year. And so there's going to be a lot of either attempting to jockey for position or attempting to get voters to recognize the existence of shows that they previously ignored like is fx slash hulu are they going to be able to get you know you knew i was going to bring this up absolutely first are they going to be able to get reservation dogs into the field given that there are this many open slots like it is such a vacated field that for emmy voters to not nominate reservation dogs it is going to take a willful act this time around And that, to me, is going to be impressive to watch play out because it's just inconceivable to me, given the state of the nomination fields, that they won't find room to it. And and the drama category, I'm going to be interested to see, I don't know, like, is this the year that Apple is going to be able to successfully get people with awards votes to notice Slow Horses, which is a popular show? anecdotally largely because again as you might have heard we don't know how popular it actually is but i get the sense people watch that show and it's exactly the kind of show that in a year in which there are suddenly seven slots and and it's even more in in a lot of the acting categories some of those categories because they were all succession and and white lotus they're completely empty there should be room for so many new nominees this year and you're going to hear me saying it over and over again on certain things like that zon mclernan for dark winds on amc needs a nomination it is inconceivable to me given the state of that category that you won't notice him and give him the recognition he deserves so reservation dogs on mclaren there will be some jockeying around in categories you look at something like the curse now the curse was nominated for golden globes in the drama field to my mind of the categories that the golden globes give out i would have said that the curse is first and foremost a limited series as it will not be coming back because that's it's a close-ended show. And then secondarily, I would say that it is a comedy. And then I, I can't even process attempting to categorize that show as a drama. And yet the Golden Globes did, because the Golden Globes are a joke. Anyway, but will Showtime attempt to say, okay, well, if the Golden Globes did it, surely the Emmys can do it. There ought to be room for an Emma Stone to get a nomination, a series to get a nomination. So that's not really where it belongs, But do they think that's its best place to get recognition? I don't know. I would say regarding Fargo and True Detective, it's tough because comedy and drama really could be extremely light this year, but limited series is not going to be. Limited series is going to be jam-freaking-packed. And And we haven't even seen Shogun Oh, well, I mean, I have them. My my review's just filed, so whatever. And I would assume it will probably be a contender, but we just last week, you know, had had Feud, which didn't get spectacular reviews, but got some positive reviews, and with that cast, it's going to get noticed. Genius, hard to tell, but previous seasons have gotten some nominations. Lots and lots of limited series out there in categories. So, you know, if you're HBO and if you're FX, do you think we would be better off in drama with Fargo and True Detective. You'll recall that True Detective season one was submitted in the drama categories because they thought, A, they thought this is where the prestige is, and B, they thought this is, you know, this is is why we have Matthew McConaughey and all of that is to win Emmys, and then instead, if memory serves, uh, Bryan Cranston and Breaking Bad won, and that was just what it was. So, like, to me, this season of True Detective, if they wanted to, 
you could make the argument that because of all of the referenced links to the first season, that it could count as a drama because of direct connections between seasons. But to me, that's not where it belongs because none of the characters are overlapping, even if there was a reference to the Tuttles or whatever. It, it, it feels separate and standalone. It feels like an anthology, but I could see how you could make the argument. I don't see how you could make the argument that Fargo is uh, anything other than exactly what it is, which is an, uh, an anthology series. There have been previous seasons that had a lot of overlapping characters, generally from different time frames. So it wasn't like you could say that the first and second seasons were connected by actors appearing, but they were connected by characters between the seasons. This season, though, was almost completely standalone. It was it had, you know, thematic and narrative connections, but not direct. It, it was a standalone season. And so I think FX's biggest goal is just going to be to make sure that people who tuned out the fourth season and didn't nominate it for as many awards as previous seasons, that they tune back in and get it back into the field. Similarly with HBO, trying to make sure that they get the show back into Emmy fields at all, because absolutely this season has gotten more hype and discussion than than the third season and probably the second season. Like, if they wanted to, though, the truth is that they have a better chance of getting nominations for both Jodie Foster and Callie Reese, probably in the drama actress category, which I believe is completely empty, other than maybe if Imelda Staunton pops back in, but she wasn't nominated last year. So yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting year. I don't think the solution for HBO and FX is going to be campaigning those particular shows as dramas, but it's going to be fun to watch. And and I and I like that because it's just a, a much more wide open field this year. And, and that should be lastly for this mailbag segment. And as always, you can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five at THR.com with future mailbag questions because y'all did a good job this week coming through with some good stuff. In short, Byron asks for any news relating to the future of Ted Lasso since it is now getting to be a little bit long since that show went off the air. Yeah, sources tell me that we're going to have some sort of resolution on what the future of the, sh the franchise is by the summer, if not sooner. Uh, that's still a few months away, but uh, yeah, I miss him. And I know I, I've heard, I, I've mentioned this on the show before too, that uh, Sudeikis misses him too, playing that character. So yeah, the, the wait is not over, but I, I wouldn't put money on this show being over. Definitely a thing to look out for. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Number five. Among this week's major new launches, Halo returns for its second season on Paramount+, Plus, which it seems like the internet has forgotten about that show, at least. One Day makes its debut on Netflix. You've got season two of Tokyo Vice on Max, and Peacock launches the crazily titled Couple to Thruple. And of course, the Super Bowl is this weekend, with CBS giving the prime post-game slot to the new drama Tracker, starring Justin Harley of This Is Us. Dan, what do you got for us? Yeah, it's an odd week, and some of the things that I might have gotten to a little bit earlier, like Apple TV's fashion drama, uh, The New Look, still embargoed for next week, so can't get to that, was unable to catch up on season one of Tokyo Vice in time to watch season two of Tokyo Vice, so nothing there. Halo, I've decided that 
no one really cares what my thoughts on Halo are. And, and since I have none, because I never finished the first season, that's okay. Like, seriously, this is a show where if the fans are happy, they should continue to be happy. And nothing that I could say would make a like a difference. And I didn't yet watch Couple to Thruple, but there's an off chance that I'll watch a couple episodes to say a few words about it for my newsletter, but not here. So that kind of leaves basically two shows to talk about in this week's Critics Corner segment, Tracker and One Day on Netflix. And okay, let's start with One Day, which is, of course, uh, based on the David Nichols uh, novel. It was previously adapted as a thoroughly forgettable film, which I'm 85% sure I've seen because I knew the twist, but yet remember absolutely nothing about. So not really sure <laughs> if there were other notable things about it. But anyway, so the TV adaptation, which is uh, primarily created by Nicole Taylor, it is told over the course of two decades, basically, each episode focusing on July 15th and its relationship to the lives of two young people, Emma, played by Ambika Maud, and Dexter, played by Leo Woodall, and how their relationship progresses from strangers to friendship, possibly to love, question mark, question mark, question mark, and beyond. The first thing I have to say, and this is primarily kind of the essence of my review, is that the series is 14 episodes of between 19 and... 40 minutes, and it's not a good structure, unfortunately. I think the looking at a life of a relationship through snapshots of a single day each year, I think it's a good premise. I just think 14 episodes of it is so full of redundant moments, of frustratedly drawn out moments. I, I don't know what the right format is like should this have been an eight episode series a because uh, apparently the movie it was not enough to be a movie uh, or or a movie was insufficient to be memorable within telling this story so it needed more than a movie but less than 14 episodes and the show drags several points there there was a long stretch in the middle of the 14 episodes where i was ready to give up the last couple episodes are kind of glorified montage flashback for two solid episodes definitely didn't need that and and so that was just really frustrating for me because the truth is that on its surface the show is driven by two extremely charming likable central performances and two characters who have a very very good friendly slash romantic slash antagonistic at times relationship and and that it, there's just a, there's a good core leo woodall was one of the people who didn't get emmy nominated for white lotus season two but but lots of people liked him very much there and i think he's he's good here T to me though the show is all about ambika Maud, who should have been emmy nominated for this is going to hurt just a great great show both she and ben wishaw were fantastic in it and both should have been emmy nominated and there was just no traction for that whatsoever which was a mistake she she is wonderful and she is much more than leah woodall unfortunately able to convey a character who really does shift over 20 years and who evolves and who changes her look her personality her confidence all of that i think she does and i think she does it wonderfully and uh i, I kept watching really and truly for her the show 
is full of very, very good supporting performances. Uh, Essie Davis and uh, Tim uh, McInerney uh, play the parents to Leo Woodall's character. I think they're both excellent. I think there are a lot of really good supporting performances. Amber Grappy is really, really good as Ambika Maud's character's uh, best friend who runs throughout the series. Eleanor Tomlinson is really, really good in a totally thankless role as uh, just a potential love interest for Leah Woodall's character who kind of gets in the middle of that central romance that we're basically going like, seriously, come on, get there already. But uh, so so the so many elements that I like of it and so many scenes that I thought work, the, the soundtrack is tremendous. If you were a fan of British music, basically between, I don't know, probably 1985 and uh, the present day, it's just the soundtrack is one banger after another. I would say probably about two thirds of them were songs that I loved, but in some cases hadn't heard at all since when they debuted, you know, since 1998, since 2001. I was like, oh, look, I, I remember that song. Yay. I haven't listened to the London Suede in decades. What fun. Great cinematography and location work, lots of good stuff in London, lots of good stuff in Edinburgh, lots of good stuff in Paris. And and just if they had found a way to tell this story in 10 episodes, let's say 10 is the right number, I think it could have been a really good, really charming, and really tight series. At 14, parts of it really annoyed me. And were I not a professional, I probably would have quit. But I am a professional, and I love Ambika Maud and, and can't wait to see what someone gives her to do next. This is so different from her part in This Is Going to Hurt. So yeah, she's excellent. And and if I were a, a British writer or an American writer, I would be looking for things to give her to do because she's excellent. So that's one day on Netflix. As for Tracker on CBS premiering after the Super Bowl, it is adapted from a series of books by Jeffrey Deaver. I believe there have been four of them now focusing on this character, Coulter Shaw, who is a reward seeker, a rewardist. His job is that he goes around tracking people, finding them, uh, or, you know, living or dead, and collecting rewards. He has... A number of people in his support network who he only talks to on the phone. Uh, some of them are played by very, very likable people. Uh, Robin Weigert and uh, Abby McEnany are the couple who set up the main character's cases. It's it's really vague. The entire business plan of whatever it is that this character is doing makes no sense. And to me, four episodes is enough time that they could have explained things better than they have. I do not understand how this is a good business model. Because basically, he's sort of a gig economy Jack Reacher. And that's what the show is. The show is a bargain basement Reacher. And if you are in the mood for a bargain basement Reacher with Justin Hartley, relatively likable enough as Jack Reacher, whose name is in this case Coulter, you know, it probably plays that it's it's not as good as Reacher on any level at all. It's it, he's not as, as interesting a character. The action scenes are not as brutal and efficient. The overall premise just not as interesting as as Reacher, unfortunately, and yet, boy, oh boy, at many different times does it try to be Reacher, but it's instead a CPS procedural, so every week he goes and tries to find someone else, and they're all very, very generic mission of the week kind of things. I wish they were all better. I wish, really, I wish the whole thing were, uh, were better, but I don't think it's aspiring to be. It really just is aspiring to be, if you like the kind of show that Reacher is, 
Uh, not only is this a show a lot like this, but we've retitled it so that it has a name that's a lot like Reacher. The main character's name, as long as we say it as Coulter enough different times, he might as well be Jack Reacher. Reacher, Coulter, structurally very similar. So Bargain Basement, Jack Reacher, uh, neither better nor worse than that it it's it's just okay if you if eight episodes of reacher is too much commitment to his various different adventures where he wanders into a small town and gets in trouble with law enforcement and bangs some woman who might not have even been given a name but it doesn't matter because that's just what jack reacher does if you if you dig that and kind of like the idea of doing that for 42 minutes per week then that is what cbs has here with tracker um Again, for better or for worse, I would say mostly for worse, but I can completely and totally see how there could be an audience for this, that this, this is the kind of thing that CBS's audience likes and that CBS delivers proficiently for that audience. And heaven knows, uh, thanks to the Super Bowl, there will be a large audience potentially sampling it. And as I mentioned, they do find a way for Justin Hartley to take off his shirt repeatedly, which does not count as male nudity, but definitely counts as beefcake if you're in the mood for such things. So yeah, uh, one day, Ambika Mod's great. The main couple, really good in fact, 14 episodes, too much, kind of annoying at that. And Tracker, it's Reacher Light. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing because those suckers help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on various social medias where she is, as always, at Snoodit, and I am, as always, at The Fine Print. Leslie, we had a questioner ask uh, why you're Snoodit on social media platforms. Do you want to tell the kids? What Snoodit means? It dates back to, let's see, the mid-1990s. It's not... It- not named after the game Snood, although I do love playing that. It's uh, a friend, an old friend's nephew who was about two or three at the time. Was we were goofing around and he and I was being kind of conceited and, and he was trying to say, "You're being conceited," but all that came out is I think he was trying to say, "You're being snooty," but all that came out is, "You're being snooted," and it just stuck. See, the more you know, kids. It's being conceited, but in a cute and funny kind of way. Oh. Excellent. So yes, she's at Snoodit. I'm at The Fine Print. And if you have questions for future mailbag segments, as I might have mentioned earlier, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That is tvstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.